Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Bobo, how are you doing today? All right, Cliff, how's it going with you? Not so bad, not so bad. You know, as as I mentioned last time, I'm at the tail tail end of COVID, um, which you know, one good thing about it. Well, there's just a, there's a couple of good things about it, and I've got some antibodies and all that sort of stuff now, pulling out of it, feeling better than I have in quite a while. Um, but you know, another good thing about it is I've had a lot of time on my hands because you know I'm uh, you know not going into work and all that sort of thing. Um, had a chance to catch up on some movies and stuff again. Have you seen that new, that new, uh, well, it's not new anymore. It was a 2021 documentary about that band Sparks that I really like. No, I haven't. Dude, you got to watch it, man. It's on uh, Netflix and stuff. It, and Sparks, do you know about, you know about the band, right? Yeah, yeah. Ladies band, or I guess they're still playing. Well, you're going to say that, but I mean, they started playing in like 70. Okay. Yeah, they started playing in 1970, and they're they're working on a new album even now. They're two brothers. They're both in their they're both in their own 70s right now. Um, just fantastic band, and they they build themselves as a your favorite band's favorite band is is what kind of kind of what they are. They kind of in a weird sort of way, they in a roundabout way, they in, invented electronic music before it was cool. Like in 78, 79, they were recording albums at Erasure and Pet Shop Boys, and all those folks would eventually start copying and. But man, what a great documentary. I, I saw it last year when it came out, but I watched it again last night. You got to check it out. And, and I guess our listeners do too. If you want to know what kind of nerd Cliff is and what kind of music I like, check these guys out. It's fantastic. And it's a testament to longevity and persistence and just good nerd pop. What's it called again? The Sparks Brothers. Okay. I'll yeah. check it out. You definitely should. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And it's a fantastic movie just as a documentary. It's just a great movie. Even if you've never even heard of the band or you couldn't name three of their songs, you probably could actually is the weird part. You're going to go, oh, wait, they did that song? I know songs they did, yeah. Yeah, and they have a lot of celebrities in it. You know, Flea is, is in there, obviously, for the Chili Peppers, which I, I love because the first time I ever saw Sparks back in 1984, um, that Red Hot Chili Peppers opened up for him. You know, and I had never heard of the Chili Peppers at that time. And they came on stage, and Anthony, uh, the singer, was in his bondage mask and doing that. Uh, see, I'm not a big Chili Peppers fan anymore. Like, but back then, I loved them when they were like weird punk funk. Like the first three or four albums are just fantastic. I think they kind of went vanilla late in their older age. You know, when everybody else started liking them, but um, nobody knew what to make for them when they opened up for Sparks. They actually got booed. <laughs> I saw, I, yeah, I saw those guys in like '83. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're a great band. I saw them. You were at um oh probably a good Bobo story time sometime. You weren't at, weren't you at that thing called the LA Street Scene? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, there is another uh, Bobo story time for perhaps another day or something. That's a good. I forgot about that one. I'll, yeah, that's a great one. Well, you want to jump into it? 
No, no, no. Okay. All right, everybody. Maybe some other time then. I'll add that to the list, though. Yeah, that was that was a crazy scene. I saw you know chili peppers and a uh, fishbone there, and also sort of oh, you were at that? Yeah, I was at that. That's my first riot. Yeah, my buddy, I was with started it. <laughs> okay, but well, with that, if your buddy started the riot, then I think that we have a, uh, or at least had a hand in it, because we don't want to have anybody getting legal problems. Oh no, he he started it. He so really. <laughs> Well, you got to tell us now. Come on. Well, gather around. It's Bobo story time. Dude, he's going to say some things that'll blow your mind. Classic. And if you say he's lying, he's going to kick you behind. For sure. Once again, it's Bobo story time. Any description of felonious or criminal activity is being told here strictly for entertainment purposes and is in no way an admission of guilt or even true for that matter. So yeah, our buddies and I, we were over at the side stage, like the very far corner, like the most furthest away from the whole thing was the punk rock stage. And we were over there and Fear was playing. These construction workers, there was a big uh, building under construction right across the street from that stage. And they were like yelling stuff down at us and yelling like whatever, like, you know, because that's back when punkers got no respect. They're like every redneck and jock wanted to beat them up. Yeah, so they weren't cat calling you and going. Like, and they're just yelling like, oh, you, you know, blah blah blah. And my buddy Fletcher, a lot of people know who Fletcher is. Fletcher Draggy, Fletcher Otis Draggy. He's the guitar player for Pennywise. He's like this huge Viking guy. He's like six six, three hundred and something pounds. And he uh, starts flipping him off and yelling, and then he takes a beer bottle and throws it at him. Doesn't even come close to hit him. It just falls in the street and or hits a parked car or something. Then he starts throwing more bottles, and then they start throwing bottles at us. And then we were—we all started trying to hit them with stuff. They—they they were like four or five floors up. We couldn't even hit them. And they started bombing stuff down. And then it just kind of from there. It took a long time to build because it was still daylight at this point. Like the sun wasn't even—it was probably half hour or more till sunset. And uh, it just started getting more and more out of control. And then people—it just—I don't know—I don't know why it grew so. Why it kept growing because it should have just stopped right there, but it kept growing. And then there, it was sponsored by Coors and California Coolers. Remember the old uh, wine? What do you call those wines? No, no, coolers. Yeah, wine coolers, right? Yeah, they, wine coolers. Mm-hmm. So they had these big tents, these Coors tents, and like the dudes started, like it started getting more and more rowdy, and like it turned into like punk gangs, kind of fighting with other punk gangs, and like bottle throwing, bottle throwing, and in the Coors tent, they evacuated them. There was like visors and stuff like that. Me, and my buddy, jump, my buddy Harold, we jumped back there. We put visors on and said Coors, and we started selling beers. <laughs> in the in the Coors tent. Yeah, and like it was obvious like we weren't Coors workers, because those guys all had like Coors shirts on. So we just put the visors on, and we started selling them. And the riot started really kicking off then. And so as it really started going, we were like, oh, man. And then the cops came over there. It took them like 20 minutes to get there, and then now it started spreading down the street. And we're like, dang, this thing's getting wild. So then... There was trash bags. I'm like, you know, we gotta get these. We've got to take these kegs out of here. We ended up taking seven kegs, like four beer cores, cores uh, kegs, and three California cooler kegs. Because after a while, the dude started jumping over the counter and like just realized we weren't anybody and jumped <laughs> back there and pouring their own beers. And we ended up rolling. Um, we had we had skateboards with us. We put we'd put a keg on the skateboard. We each had a skateboard. Put a trash bag over it. We rolled it out. The riots really started to spread now, and it, we couldn't get through. Like it was, it was 
you, you were there. It was chaos. It was like one, what was there? 1.4 million people there. Yeah. There were a lot of people there and it just got out of hand. And I was like 13, I think at the time it was very scary for me. Yeah. It was gnarly. And I'll never forget, like we were rolling at the back and then there's another tent and we're like, Oh my God, there's another tent right there. And like the workers there were getting, like starting to leave. It was at the James Brown stage. So we, we jumped back there and started selling beers there too. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, it was pretty classic because these black dudes were there. And they're like, they started questioning us, like, man, who are you guys? Like, what do you think you're doing? We're just like, oh, you know, whatever, whatever. And then they just kind of pushed us out of the way and took over. And yeah, we're just a couple of narrative wells, sir. <laughs> yeah, we, we got we got more kegs from there. We, we rolled them out the back and just put trash bags over them and just left them there. And then we came back, like, we had a fight through the crowd. Like, the LAPD did a horse charge into the crowd. So then the riot kind of was pushing it got to the family stage on that video was the Osmonds playing Donnie and Marie Osmond. Nice. Didn't even know that I can remember they were there. Yeah, dude. And like so the riot came right in like the family or like we were kind of like right at the foredge of the of the riot. It was kind of like right behind us. We were like probably fifty feet, hundred feet in front of it at the most. But I'll never forget seeing like bottles go flying into like these Mormon families, you know, like clean cut, you know, suburban middle class people with their kids and all of a sudden like there's LAPD horse brigade charging through and guys with you know letting off pepper spray bombs and it just went crazy but we got four kegs of beer and three uh, california cooler kegs out of there we ended up having like a two-day party at our friend's parents house who was gone then we took two of the kegs down at night and buried them on the beach so we had like a beach party then for two days too just drinking beers like you know just a tap coming up out of the ground Mm -hmm. and uh had a good old time wow talk about a geyser on the beach yes that's amazing I know I'm forgetting all kinds of details, like like stuff that happened because, like, we never got hurt, but like we just got we just missed getting like run over by horses and like panic people running like huge mobs running through the streets like trying to get away from stuff and they'd, they'd go running down and people had no idea because you'd go across the side like to their stages they didn't know what was going on. It was so spread out, you know, like what happened on one one side of the LA street scene, you had no idea because it's so far away to the other side. Yeah, I remember going by the. Oh, you know, you know what it really kicked off. That's what I forgot. Is when uh, the Guns and Roses stage when Guns and Roses was playing. When it kind of got to that part, those guys went crazy. Their crowd. Mm. That's what amped it up like three levels. That's what that's what got the cops going really hot. Was was them guys? I remember it was terrifying. You know, because at thirteen, I didn't know what was going on, and you know, I was even shorter than I am now. Then, so I couldn't see very well. And there, my brother was there. And I think I was there with one of my brother's friends. They gave me a ride out there and they just let me tag along with them. And yeah, it was scary. Cause you didn't know where to go. Cause there was like, it was just this, there was like one, I think this paper, it's like 1.4 million people were down there. So it was just this crazy human mass. And like people from the North side are trying to go to the South side, people from the South side trying to go to the North side, like just these crushing crowds running into each other. It was, it was mayhem. Yeah, I think that happened for a few more years after that till they had to call the whole thing off. Yeah, Fletcher was wild, dude. He was our craziest friend by by far. Like that's saying something. Yeah, dude. People thought I was wild. He was like way notches above that. Like, like I see a lot of like rock guys and punk guys try to like act like they're like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm a rock star. I'm a punker. Like, I'm gonna break this or like steal that car, or drive this car through that wall or whatever, like Fletcher just did that stuff. If no one was looking, I mean, that's just how he was since we were little kids. <laughs> no one was looking. <laughs> uh, oh man. Oh man. Well, it's always good to start off a episode of Bigfoot and beyond with a Bobo story time. Oh, uh, one other time I went over Fletcher, uh, left my bike at Fletcher's house and, or he borrowed it and rode it home or something like that. This is like, again, probably like, stole it by the sound of him. 
seventh, eighth grade. Oh, I knew it was there. I was like, Fletcher, I need my bike back. And he wouldn't bring it back. Yeah, he borrowed it, I think. But anyways, he wouldn't bring it back. I'm like, dude, bring my bike back. I, I, I don't want to walk all the way over there because he lived like about a mile and a half from here, a mile or something. I was like, damn it, Fletcher, I want I'll bring my bike back. He didn't bring it back. So I walked all the way over there. I was all mad. I come walking up towards his house. He lived on a big street, second street. I go, there's my bike. And I see him take a lighter and he also he lights the tires and the tires go up in flames and he ghost rides it down the hill away from me. <laughs> like just full ghost ride with the wheels on fire. And he thought that was the funniest thing. It is pretty funny. It was funny, but I was pissed. Oh man. Well, all right. That's a good way to start this episode off. Yep. How about if we talk about a little Bigfoot stuff? That's boring now. <laughs> yeah, apparently compared to <laughs> Fletcher. Yeah. Well, yeah, so this is a, this is one of those topical episodes of Bigfoot and Beyond. I st- we just still don't have a snazzy name for it. I'd kind of like to dream one up. Feel free to submit your own guesses on that one. Um, if you want to try to name one of these episodes, send us an email over bigfootandbeyondpodcast at gmail.com. Be happy to entertain all options. Um, no guarantees that we're going to actually take any of them, but you might as well throw your two cents in, you know, throw your hat into the ring there. So, yeah, so Bigfoot and Beyond, this is our topical discussion. Bobo and I have submitted a couple stories for us to um, kind of shoot the poop about and go back and forth with it. So, Bobo, which one do you want to start with? What do you feel like today? Or do you want me to call it? Um, I like that one that Russ Jones put up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Let's see. That would be Twitter one right here. Okay. Yeah, so basically, Russ Jones, um, he, he put up this, uh, this, this uh, graphic, and also Dr. Meldrum put it up. For, uh, I don't know if he put it up first or, or not, but um, this was seen on Dr. Meldrum's Facebook page as well as do, uh, Dr. Russ Jones's uh, Facebook and Twitter feed. Um, basically, it is a, uh, um, a picture of, an, of a World War II airplane and showing where all the bullets hit, essentially, where, where these planes take the most damage. I'll read you the text right now. Um, you don't really need to see the, the picture to understand what we're going to be talking about here. But um, here's the text. During World War II, fighter planes would come back from battles with bullet holes. The Allies found the areas that were most commonly hit by enemy fire. They sought to strengthen the most commonly damaged parts of the planes to reduce the number that was shot down. A mathematician, some dude named Abraham Wald, pointed out that perhaps there was another way to look at the data. Perhaps the reason certain areas of the planes weren't covered in bullet holes was that the planes that were shot in those areas did not return. This insight led to the armor being reinforced on the parts of the plane where there were no bullet holes. The story behind the data is arguably more important than the data itself, or more precisely, the reason behind we are missing certain pieces of data might be more meaningful than the data that we have. Don't only listen to what is being said, listen more to what is not being said. I think that's wise, right? Yeah, I think it's saying that where there's no Bigfoot reports, the people are all dying. Is that what is, is that what they're saying? Well, I suppose it's a, that's one way to look at it. But uh, the see, I, I think here the, the real takeaway is negative data. Negative yeah. data is still data, and it's still valuable and should be gathered. Yeah, to tell people we're looking at like the it's like you're looking from the bottom up at a twin propeller plane, and all the bullet holes like there's a couple hundred of them. But there's a few spots on the fuselage and on the wings where there's no dots at all. It looks like a Bigfoot sighting map. It does, in fact, look like a Bigfoot sighting map because a bunch of dots are all over a plane or a map in this case. Um, and what, what, you know, for a Bigfoot sighting map, basically, it shows you where a Bigfoot was seen. Um, it, but what, sometimes the important thing is where they're not seen. 
essentially, because that's that's what we call negative data. And negative data is when you don't get anything or there's no, nothing to report from there. Um, a lot of people don't write that stuff down. They don't take notes about that. What actually sometimes the negative data is the most important thing. Right. Yeah. When I take my, my notes or whatever on field reports and things, um, I take note of whatever's out there and like maybe, maybe there's a temperature thing. And wouldn't that be interesting if we never run into a Sasquatch, we never think we have a Sasquatch encounter or hear vocalizations or knocks or anything when the, the temperature's below 30. Now that's not necessarily the case, but that might be an example of negative data. And I think people can see how that is important. You know, so if, if you can figure out, and it is, people are always looking um, at, at how do I encounter a Sasquatch? It's equally important to how not to encounter a Sasquatch so you can avoid doing those things. Right. I think another example is something that Moneymaker um, stumbled upon kind of early is uh, the presence of very, very bright lights. Apes, all apes, including humans, um, we're, we're visual sort of critters. You know, we we are, we look at things that that's one of our dominant senses. So you would think that if you had bright lights on in the woods, then um, then oh, that gives the Sasquatches something to look at, right? And uh, it just kind of makes sense in that sort of way. But we, we find that if you have a bunch of bright lights around, Sasquatches aren't really going to come around. Yeah, there's outliers. There are certain circumstances where a Bigfoot doesn't care and it goes into the light. But by and large, they seem to avoid the, the big spotlighted areas. Uh, Moneymaker told me years ago that some people who would call and say, I've got these Bigfoots on the property. What am I? I don't want them here. What am I going to do? That's just put bright lights up. And that usually solves the problems. It makes the Bigfoots go away. But that was known forever, but just not, people wouldn't say, oh, because of Bigfoot, they were booger lights. Like all through the whole South, everyone had booger lights lived in rural areas, like big street lights in their yard to keep the boogers out. Right, right. But you see, that, that's the importance of that, that, that negative data in a way. You can find out um, what they don't like and you can avoid doing those things. Right. But I'm just saying, like, well, that's true, but I'm just saying that also that. The information was already there. It was just was presented in a different way, kind of. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that this tweet or this, this diagram of the plane was actually very interesting in that because we're always looking for the positive hits. What do they like? What? Where do they want to be? What are their food sources? When you can also look at the other side and to say, okay, well, what do they avoid? That actually might help you find one too. It might, it might help you get close to one by learning a little bit about what, what they're, uh, they have aversions to. Correct. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. I want to throw that into the pile of stuff to talk about. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Then uh, we got the Grays Harbor designating as a Sasquatch Protection and Refuge Area. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. I just, uh, it turns out actually, let me pull this up on my computer. I received an email um, just this past week from a teacher in Grays Harbor County. Um, Grays Harbor County, of course, is in Washington. It's out by Aberdeen um, in that general area. And I'm going to read the email to you. 
I teach fifth grade at Hoquiam, Washington, and my kids had to write a persuasive letter. They researched Sasquatch and wrote to our county commissioners to ask them to make Grays Harbor a protected area for Bigfoot. And it passed. We are now the third county in Washington to protect Bigfoot. Amazing. Thought you would like to know. So anyway, um, there's a newspaper article about it. I posted it on my Facebook and stuff. I put it in my members section for uh, the museum. And here it is. Grays Harbor designated as a quote-unquote Sasquatch protection and refuge area. So, oh, and by the way, being Facebook, people were actually saying, how much money does this cost? And like poo-pooing it like trolls. Oh, God. People. Fifth graders wrote this, and you're going to do that? So disappointing. Anyway, um, here I'm going to read the article real fast, if you don't mind. Sasquatch have additional protections within Grays Harbor thanks to local students. At a recent meeting, the Grays Harbor County Commissioners were presented with a request to protect the elusive Sasquatch population of the region. Grays Harbor Commission Vicki Rains spoke to KXRO about the request. And there's like a recording and stuff on the newspaper, uh, on, the, on the news uh, article here. You can listen to the woman. Um, the fifth grade students of Miss Andrews at Lincoln Elementary in Hoquiam said in their letter that Sasquatch are historically not an aggressive species and should not be treated as such. Quote, one reason we should have laws protecting Sasquatch is because when sightings have been reported, no attacks or injuries have occurred. In most reports, Sasquatch are reported to run away from people, unquote. That's not entirely true. I mean, they have attacked, injured, and killed people, but it's it's rare. Yeah, let's not tell that story of the ogress of, you know, Battle of Blinn or whatever. It's like, they right. eat children. They eat children. Yeah, probably don't want to bring that one up right now. And let's, ha- let's let the kids have their victory. <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead of Listen, giving them kids, nightmares. Here's a, here's a slap of reality for you little punks. Yeah, exactly. Don't go out in the woods at night. They're going to get you. <laughs> it is what, interesting with the next part you're going to read. Yeah, yeah. Another reason they cited was that these protections allow for continued research that would allow scientists to find out any, quote, benefits of what they do for our world, unquote. What kind of benefits would Sasquatches do for our world, Bubs? What do you think? They sometimes keep poachers out of areas because they come, when guys are poaching at night, they'll come and scare them out. That's true. That's true. I mean, like any large predator, they keep help keep animals in balance, you know, like deer and elk. Like where, where I live up in, near the Redwood National Park, that herd went from like 7,500 animals down to like three or 4,000, and they could never figure out what was going on. I kept telling them, squatches are eating those elk calves, squatches are taking the elk calves. But they wouldn't put that into the, their thinking. So, um, mm. I mean, like wolves in Yellowstone, you know, I think they help uh, keep order. They do a lot more than that. Did you catch that article a few years ago that uh, since they've reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone, the river systems are more healthy? Just the river pathways? The whole, yeah, because the, the elk aren't eating all the shoots down there so it can grow up. and Yeah, yeah, because the, the elk really screw up like the way the rivers flow, apparently, by tromping around in the meadows and, you know, changing the courses of the rivers and things. So, yeah, yeah. And so Sasquatches would certainly do that. Well, here, I'm going to continue reading this thing. The resolution was passed with notation that if Sasquatch exists, it is not flourishing, and added that since Sasquatch is not flourishing, it is likely an endangered species and subject to great harm and extinction if it continues to be unprotected. Wrong, kids. Yeah, I don't agree with that one either. I don't agree with that one. It is flourishing. There's way more timberlands, woodlands than there used to be, not timberlands, but woodlands than there used to be like 100 years ago, 200 years ago even. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any sign that they're going extinct, that's for sure. No, the reports are spreading out more and more places. They're seeing, yeah, for all the places they're losing due to human expansion, they've, they've repopulated areas that they hadn't been seen for 100 years. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think that there's any reason to think that they're uh, going extinct. But, you know, if that helped to protect the area, I'm cool with it. Right. And again, they're fifth graders. They're 10-year-olds, man. Like, like, and, they're, and they're participating. They're having like civic engagement. They're participating in their community. I think this is rad. They're, like, everybody wins on this one. This is fantastic. Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and continue. No legal ramification was added to the resolution, only resolving that Grays Harbor residents are asked to recognize and honor the area as a Sasquatch protection and refuge area. I like how they honor that. That's rad. While Grays Harbor has a long history with Bigfoot, most notably the contribution of Dennis Hereford, who made the Hereford casts of Bigfoot prints within Grays Harbor and available as recasts online, it is not the first time within the state that similar legislation has been passed. In 1969, Skamania County commissioners passed an ordinance that originally held a $10,000 fine over anyone who committed a premeditated, willful, and wanton slaying of a Sasquatch or Bigfoot. In their letter, the Lincoln Elementary students noted the Skamania Ordinance as well as a resolution from 1991 in Whatcom County that declared a Sasquatch protection and refuge area and stated, if such a creature exists, it is inadequately protected and in danger of death or injury. In addition, in 1970, Governor Dan Evans made a seemingly tongue-in-cheek proclamation designating Sasquatchy protected as uh, as a Washington state resource and official state monster. Official mm-hmm. designation as the official cryptid or crypto animal of Washington has also been, uh, been proposed. You know what? This is not the first time I've seen Sasquatches uh, pluralized by adding an I at the end, and I don't like it. No. Is that how you say it? Sasquatchy? I guess. I, I mean, is it, but see, the thing is, um, you plural, <clears throat> I'm sorry, that, that is a common way to pluralize um, words that have a Greek root, like hippopotamus, uh, hippopotami. That, that's where that comes from. It's a Greek root. Sasquatch is not a Greek root. It's not even a European root. It's a Sahelis root from the Sahelis Reserve in British Columbia. Correct. Yeah, so you can't, you can't, you can't go around. And, you know, I, I see some of the forest friends people doing the same thing. You know, like putting an I at the end. It's like, no, don't do that. I think it's disrespectful. I mean, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's, but uh, you could disrespect people a lot worse than that. But at the same time, you just don't do it. it, it you only pluralize things, uh, Greek rooted words, ending in an I. You hear that, Kip Morrow? We're talking to you, Kip. Yeah, you're never going to make Sasquatch of the Year again for the ninth time if you continue doing that. Yeah. That'll teach you. And the other thing is, I want to see these uh, campaign contribution forms for these commissioners. I want to see how much these kids paid in to get this uh, legislation passed. Well, whatever they paid is worth it. I think it's cool. Yeah. It's good use. And you know what? Um, I don't... For for the trolls on my Facebook page saying things like, I'm going to do this cost to taxpayers. Really? Come on. A couple... Ink? A little bit of time? I, finally, the government's doing something good, and you're complaining about taxpayer dollars going to this. How many taxpayer dollars go to signing a piece of paper and, and encouraging fifth graders to participate in local government? Follow the money, Cliff. Follow the money. Yeah, it's those fifth grade lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the it's the, uh, it's the deep state fifth graders out there yeah. pulling the strings behind. You know, pulling the strings <laughs> behind. Fifth graders are the puppet masters of the world. That's why everything's going to hell so quick. You know. At least in Grace Harbor. 
Well, I don't know. Grace Harbor. Come as you are. You know, I like it. That's a little Nirvana reference since Aberdeen's in Grace Harbor, home of Kurt and Chris. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, um, of course, it's on the sign as you drive into Aberdeen. Oh, it is on the sign now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's Aberdeen. Come as you are. It's like, how cool. All right. Yeah, so that's that story. I'm pretty pleased about that one. And you know, th- this uh, article referenced the 1969 Skamania County law about the $10,000 fine. By the way, in 1984, they rewrote it and dropped the fine dramatically, just so you know. So it's not kind of lacks some of the teeth. But um, that came about because um, of uh, some uh, some footprint fines up on Bear Creek in Skamania County. And um, uh, some sheriffs went up there and cast some prints and whatever else. Um, Linda Durrell was the witness. And I believe if you go back to the very earliest episodes of Bigfoot and Beyond, it was one of those times that um, we were kind of scrambling for an episode. Bobo couldn't make it. I couldn't make it. So I gave an interview um, I gave an interview to our, our producer, Matt Pruitt, said, well, here, th- we can put this out. I interviewed uh, Linda Durrell about those events. So if you go back to one of our earlier episodes of Bigfoot and Beyond, you can hear the interview um, that I had with Linda Durrell th- and, her, and what happened with her that led directly to the Skamania County Commissioners passing that law in 1969. Cool. Yeah, I got to advertise for our own podcast on our own podcast, of course. <laughs> yeah, Bubba, there's this, there's this podcast called Bigfoot and Beyond. You ever listen to it? Actually, I do. I've been going through the old ones, man. There's some great ones. Yeah, we've accidentally created some good stuff, man. I know. For, I know we got so many new listeners. I think we've like tripled or quadrupled our listenership in the last year. If you go back before that, there's some really good stuff. Well, this last year has, hasn't been too shabby either, I'd say. Oh, well, people go, only go back so far, usually, you know, like a month or two when they discover. The average person doesn't go back more than like one or two months. I think we have very few average people listening to our podcast. I think most of them are exceptional. I agree. Okay. Well, next story. You want to go on to something else? Yeah. How about the vocabulary of apes one? Oh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. That's really the best one. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, um, an article from Science Daily. Um, it, 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 the, the title, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it's actually a legit you know, journal article. But the title is uh, for the Science News article here is Ape Vocabularies Shaped by Social Mingling Like in Humans. Basically, it, it, it kind of t- it, it talks about, and this is mostly a study on orangutans, but I think it really um, uh, has a lot to say about Sasquatches as well. Basically, that uh, the vocalizations that apes use depend heavily upon the population density of those particular groups. Yeah, so the orangutan populations differed naturally in population density from groups that socialized intensely to those that were more dispersed. In high-density populations, the orangutans communicated using a large variety of original calls, original calls, trying out lots of novel sound variants that were continually modified or dropped. But the orangutans in lower, sparser density populations favored more established conventional calls. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and that has to do with Sasquatches, of course, because we've often, we've wondered for years, do the Bigfoots on the East Coast make the same sounds as the Bigfoots on the West Coast? And by and large, they seem to. Um, they seem to. And Sasquatches clearly have a low population density. I think pretty much no matter where they are, there might be a little bit of fluctuation in that, like maybe, you know, seven or eight individuals in a couple of different valleys. That's probably a high population for them. But still, that's not that much. Um, so basically what they're saying is that when there's a high density of orangutans in an area, they have a bunch of different calls and they try out new ones too. 
But a lot of times those new ones just kind of drop away and they don't really incorporate them into the local vernacular. Whereas if the population density is really low and there are very few of these apes around, they kind of go to the old standbys. They have the same vocalizations and and they're, they're very distinct. But occasionally when a new one is introduced, they stick to it longer. And I think that, uh, I mean, the, the authors of the paper say that has, they can glean a lot about human populations from that and a human evolution, which I always find to be very fascinating and very pertinent in, uh, for, for uh, Sasquatch research as well. But I think it has a lot to do with Sasquatches as, because Sasquatches do have a relatively low population density. I think no matter where they're found, and maybe, maybe because of what this uh, group of scientists has been studying, maybe that this has something to do with it. That, that, that they are also like orangutans in that sort of way. Um, but when they in, they get a new vocalization in there, uh, something new, like maybe a car door slamming sound, they stick with it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, Bobes? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like, have you heard vocalizations in one part of the country that you've never heard in another one, in another um, part? No, I haven't. But I did notice while we were doing Fighting Bigfoot, I think due to the fact that the show's popularity and people going out and doing Ohio calls everywhere, I did notice on the east and west coast, the Ohio howls I heard all got shortened. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I've heard a lot more short ones, like, as opposed to those, like, the 12-second ones. Right. I've heard very few of those in my entire life, but I've heard a whole bunch of those short ones. Yeah, that's just another one of those things. I can't wait for the scientists to get on board and start studying this, and we start getting answers to these questions that just drive us all sleepless nights. You know, it's just these things you think about, like, like what are they? Um, and I know from doing the uh, Dave Ellis and those guys have done with the auto recordings that they've been studying is they're, they're similar across the country. That's that's the main takeaway they're getting is that they have a pretty universal standard of calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, that does seem to be true. And then I, I I'm thinking in Florida I've heard them do whoops, the same kind of whoops I've heard them do in British Columbia, um, yeah. Ohio, same sort of thing I've heard them do in California. Um, and I, and so is that, I wonder if it's due to the population density, like this article is suggesting with orangutans. I'll bet it has something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to be very, very surprised. Uh, I just cannot wait until after discovery where we can start learning about these things, um, in long-term studies, of course. But then again, you know, dude, if they were discovered today, like if they were proven to be real today, we'd know barely more about them by the time we die. Cause we're in our fifties, man. We only got like 30 more years or so. I was going to say, I, I, I was talking to someone else about this just real recently about, they said, yeah, when we get the studies going, I said, dude, even when the studies get going, it's going to take them years and years and years to get much of anything. Yeah. Nature of this beast, man. It's pretty tough. Yeah, and who knows? Like, we know that, you know, we're pretty sure now that they stay in more centralized locations, roam around a smaller area than maybe we thought before. But if there's people in there putting up cameras and stuff like that, they're going to move to the next area. Yeah. Could, could very well be true. I think a lot of it's going to be, depend on these long-term witnesses. You know, yeah. They're going to be the best sources of information, kind of like they are now. And Bobo, I, I know that you've seen um, several pieces of footage and photographs and things um, that the, the owners don't want out there from these long-term you know, witness situations. Um, can you imagine how many pieces of footage, uh, good footage and photographs and all these other things that are out there sitting on properties that the owners, oh, I don't want it to release cause I don't want my neighbors to think I'm crazy or I don't want a bunch of people on my property. And, and they're just sitting on these, on these, these fantastic pieces of footage. Or like the, uh, when we had Joe on here from the Montana vortex, 
he was next to that German tourist up at uh, Glacier National Park, and the guy was shooting pictures of two Bigfoots, a big, like, eight-foot stud male, then a smaller one behind it, plowing through the snow, and the guy was taking such close pictures. They were looking, when, they, when, he got, when the thing went out of view, they were looking at the guy's photos on his screen, you know, on the camera, I mean, the guy had like a two foot long lens on a telephoto lens, and you could see like the differenti- differentiation in color of the finger fingernails to the fingers, the palm. It was that detailed, and those have never turned up. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard many stories about people. Oh, I just went to this old man's house, and he had a game camera picture he showed me on his big screen TV, or, or uh, oh, I, I've even heard skeptics say I've, I saw a picture that I can't imagine how they faked it, but they must have because it's they're not real or uh yeah that i don't know i've seen some pictures myself that i don't know how they could have been fit but none of these things are out there and i just have to assume there's so many more oh dude remember we did Mayaka in florida there was the guy shot that video of the thing running through the swamp grass with a cell phone camera but as he, he yeah falcon i think his last name is right? yeah the falcon film and then as, as he's panning around with his cell phone camera he's got like two other people with like foot long uh, zoom lens cameras taking pictures of the same thing, and none of those pictures ever turned up. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Isn't that, oh, you know, and what's funny is um, the, uh, the, the Roseburg footage. You know, you've seen the Roseburg footage because yeah. you've been to the North American Bigfoot Center. It's the only place you can see it. But like that woman never even thought about sharing it. It was one of her friends who knew about me, who knew that, you know, Cliff lived in Oregon somewhere. And um, he's the guy that reached out, and that's how we got a hold of the, the nine minute piece of footage of the Sasquatch taken at 300 yards. Um, but she never even thought about sharing it or, or she wasn't hiding it. She just never thought it was that big of a deal. Yeah. It's pretty low res. That's why probably. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not the best. It's not going to, nothing you can take to the bank. Not going to convince anybody who doesn't already think they're real. Discovery is going to change a lot of things. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Earthquake lights. I had never heard of those before until I was talking to Moneymaker just a, maybe about a month or two ago. Really? Yeah, I'd never even heard about it. Dude, I've seen um, in the big 1991 quakes up in Northern California. I was in college going up there in Humboldt State. I saw that it was like a 7.1. Dude, there was, it was shaking. So it was, um, well, there's different kinds of magnitude measurements. There's four kinds of uh, seismic measurements. There's moment, moment magnitude, and um, God, I forget. There's S waves, P waves, M waves. And these are the highest M waves ever recorded. Not the highest Richter scale, the highest M waves, like the punch factor to it, like the short, jabby punches, like bam, bam, not not like the big rolling thunderous ones. Okay. And I saw like light gathering up at the bottom of the telephone pole. And then, and also another like, uh, you know, fence posts and stuff around there like balls of light going up and going shooting up to the top of the pole and then exploding like in a little firework explosion on top of the pole. So you've seen them. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So for our listeners, see, I I never heard of earthquake lights. I didn't know what they were. And and I certainly didn't have a reason to connect anything like that with Bigfoot. But let, let me tell you what's going on. So I was talking to Moneymaker on the phone like about a month ago, maybe two months ago now, and he went back to the location where the uh, the BFRO Sierra footage, the thermal footage, um, w- was obtained. 
um, up in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. And he was there and he commented about seeing orbs when he was there. And, you know, like, I don't think, I mean, I know you've seen orbs and everything else. I've never seen orbs. I don't know what to think about them. And I don't think they have much, if anything to do with Sasquatches, um, except that people are looking for Sasquatches and they see orbs and therefore they connect the two, right? I'm no fun in that way. You know me. But anyway, he saw orbs and um, he and he went to go and he said, Dude, I've never seen so many in my life or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, well, God, what do you think it is? And I'm still thinking, like, is this some sort of woo nonsense or whatever? And then um, he goes, no, no, they're, they're, they're earthquake lights. And I go, what is that? And apparently earthquake lights are basically orbs. They're basically orbs of various sizes. Um, and they're, they're weird aerial phenomenon that uh, floating orbs through the air and they occur in areas of great tectonic and seismic stress, like in places where faults come together, like geologic faults come together or like where there's volcanoes and that sort of thing. And no one really knows what causes them. Um, there's probably some sort of like electrical phenomenon from the grinding or pressure of rocks or, or something like that. Nobody knows what causes them, but the place where um, the, the, the Sierra footage was obtained apparently has a lot of earthquake lights. And like Matt was saying, yeah, like follow him around. I'm just watching him go through the woods. He's never seen more of them in his life. And I'm thinking, man, I really, that just makes me want to go to the location even more now, knowing that there's a couple of Bigfoots hanging out and they don't seem to be too shy. That's rad. But the fact that there's, there's earthquake lights and orbs and stuff like that, um, that's just amazing. That's so cool to me. And I have to wonder, um, like, Bobo, I know you've seen orbs and I've been with you. When you've seen an orb um, at, at uh, you know up at Bluff Creek, there, I wonder if that's one of those places because it is a place with a um, with a lot of exposed uh, bedrock, for example, at the top of the mountain in that valley. Um, maybe that's what that was that you saw. The earthquake lights, like the famous ones that people like Mexico City and all that stuff, like those are like not like lightning bolts coming out of the ground. It's more like like you know in the distance you see like just pulsing light lightning. Like you don't see a lightning bolt; you just see like the whole light sky light up. Okay. The earthquake lights, like the people are talking about, like those earthquake lights, the big ones that you see from like miles and miles away, like they're miles across. It's like that kind of lightning coming from the ground. What I saw was like the energy, whatever it would go, it would go up like into trees or whatever, but it was really going up the telephone pole and the light pole and it would shoot up. Like just, you'd see like this coloration go shooting up and it would came up the top, like in a ball shape and just popped like right there. It didn't like float around or anything. Well, you know, I did, just did a quick Google search for Google images for earthquake lights, and it doesn't seem like there's any consensus as far as what they can look like. Um, there's Some of them do look like uh, um, orbs, actually, and other ones look like maybe uh, um, like what you're describing right there. And yeah, so it looks like there might, there might be a variety of different shapes. And of course, since they don't know what causes them in the first place, who's to say what changes the shape of them all, I guess? Well, how often do they happen when there's no earthquake? Is it, is it they happen in an earthquake zone without an earthquake? Or oh yeah, yeah, you don't need an earthquake at all. It's just a, a place of seismic stress, is what they said. But they actually, but there's orbs like balls of light floating around for like a while that were yeah, apparently, um, apparently, money maker. You had, you had to call Matt and ask him about those things. You know, it'd be very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah, and because you know I'm always looking for normal explanations for things that people love to attribute to Sasquatches, because that you know I don't think there's anything weird going on with Bigfoots. Yeah, they are kind of weird; they do weird things, but not like change into orbs and float around and speak to you inside your brain and stuff. So, right, right. 
I'm not I, I never, I, I never, I never thought that earthquake lights could be like floating balls. I thought it was just like that lightning coming up out of the ground. Uh, that's what I always thought it was. No, check it out, man. Do a little Google search there. There's actually photographs of these orb things. And they, but but there's there's got to be pictures of those orbs. I mean, the orbs get photos get taken all over the place where there's no you know history of recent seismic activity. Yeah, yeah, even ones that aren't like dust and things in the air. Right. Oh well, yeah. I guess, well, I think most orbs are that. Yeah. When people see orbs, it's weird because the ones I've seen didn't show up on therm or camera or anything, but the ones that people don't see them, they show up in the pictures. I think that's like dust and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that looks like, I didn't even see it when I was there, but look, they're all over the place. I'm just surrounded by them. So, yeah, well. Clean your lens. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the stuff in the air. You no, know? it's in the air, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, it's kind of sad, but, but I don't but know. No, that's, that's really interesting, yeah, because, you know, what uh, trips me out more is that night, that same that I saw the blue orb was earlier that night, if you remember, I saw those like five flashes of white light. Oh, when we're out for the walk, I do remember that. Yeah, that, that would explain that a lot more to me. But, but they, apparently they come in both flavors. Maybe that's what's going on out there. Could be. But I heard the breaking, crunching sounds where the blue light was. Well, that was the thing. Remember we could hear something oh. walking? Oh, that's true. That's Well, yeah, and we did get a recording that night. Yeah, that whistle knock that I have, you know? Yeah. Well, here, uh, I'm sure people want to hear it. Uh, why don't we take a listen to that right now? Ah, memories. Ah, memories. That was a great night, man. That was. That was a trip that night. Had my head spinning, that was for sure. Yeah, now, of course, uh, when people listen to this uh, recording, um, I did edit it down because there was about 45 seconds of silence in between the whistle and the knock, but I I just took all that out because 45 seconds of silence isn't the most exciting thing to listen to. Then again, sometimes after a long, hard day, you know, it really is a nice thing to listen to, but as a podcast, we won't do that to you. And we know that we know that the Earth can generate its own infrasonic sound, which you know we, we associate with possibly with Sasquatches being able to emit that. And if you're getting orbs, I'm sure that it's going to emit some kind of infrasound, also. I would imagine it might. It might. Someone smarter than me has got to figure that out. Get on it, Cliff. It's going to be hard to find. <laughs> yeah. So earthquake lights might be a perfectly normal, although albeit weird, explanation for some of these orbs in Bigfoot areas. And uh, we're, we're almost at the end. I think we have two more stories if we can make it that far. Yeah, well, there's that. The first photo of Bigfoot and the origin of the great Bigfoot cover-up on YouTube. Bob Gillen with a Y. Total hogwash. Well, people are buying it because I had people writing to me saying, did you see that? That's, it's, it's the real deal. I'm like, dude, that's so not real. Or, I mean, it might be real, but it's not a Bigfoot. I think it's a real picture. I just don't think it's a Bigfoot in it. So basically, there's this picture, and it's supposedly from the 1800s, and it might be. I don't know. Who knows? I, I thought, for some reason, I thought it was from the 1920s, but... 1894. Yeah, well, now it's being billed as that, you know, so maybe it is. I don't know. But basically, it's a black and white picture, in this, and there's a, a something, there's an animal of some sort laying down in the snow. On the left-hand side, there's some snowshoes propped up, and people are saying it's a Bigfoot, and and because of the way it lays down and stuff, and it's just, no, it is not a Bigfoot. It is clearly not a Sasquatch. Um, there's no shoulders on the thing. You can't yeah. see the finger. It, it's a cat. It's a big It's a big mountain lion or something like that, and um, I passed it around to a few trusted people, and one gentleman I, I gave it to, uh, who's who I completely trust said that uh, somebody did a very in-depth analysis of the photo and said it was a lynx of some sort. And I thought it was a cat. I thought it might be a mountain lion, but um, a lynx. Sure. Why not? looks like a cat to me. Those big Canadian lynxes, they can get up like 80 pounds. 
Yeah, it would have to be a pretty big one. I thought it was a, a mountain lion because of the long, slinky body and everything. But you just don't see the tail is all. But it's such a poor quality photograph. Um, it clearly is not a Sasquatch. All those old pictures. I've never seen one of those old pictures that I, I think it was, was a Bigfoot at all. Me neither. There is that one picture, though, the, the very, very first Sasquatch photograph that I'm aware of. Uh, what was it? Was it Zach Hamilton? Is that the name? Oh, are you talking about the one that they left it at the, the developer and never picked it up? Yeah, yeah. He brought it in. Um, and I, I think the San Francisco. San Francisco Chronicle, I think, owns it technically. 1960. Was it 1960? Yeah, you have a good 61, memory. 60 stuff. or 61. It was right in there for sure. I think that might be a Bigfoot. I think that, dude, that one is always stuck with me. It's the one, it's really far off, but it looks like a, I mean, not, I don't know how tall it is, but it's super broad and thick and it's running away like it's, it's running completely with its back to the camera. And the guy got one picture of it and he told the person when he dropped it off, I got this crazy picture up in the Sierra Nevadas, blah, blah, blah. And then he never came back and picked it up. Yeah, yeah. If you want to see it, look up Zach Hamilton Bigfoot photograph, um, and it'll come up. It's it's not again not a whole lot you can write home about, but it is interesting, and I think it actually might be real. Um, but there's so little there; it's hard to say much about it, honestly. And so we are down to one more news item we can talk about real quick, Bobes. Um, yeah. I, I do have a heart out here, real quick. Uh, my wife is coming home. She's been in Pittsburgh for the last couple of weeks, and uh, her plane lands in just about an hour, and it takes about. 45 or 50 minutes to get to the airport. So I got to get going here. I have higher yeah. priorities than you and your silly podcast. Whoa, dude. <laughs> can I always get a new wife? You can't get a new bobs. <laughs> That's true. I can't get a new bobs. You're irreplaceable, but so is my wife. So plenty of fish in the sea, but only one large mammal basking in the sun on the rocks. <laughs> Okay. Well, of course, this one, um, you, you pulled from uh, Wes's blog, I believe, uh, the Sasquatch yeah. Chronicles blog. You want to talk about it? Yeah, it's just about how researchers have uh, shown now through, their, uh, through some studies that silverback gorillas can broadcast their presence with a stinky stench or turn off their scent to hide from strangers. Yeah, and that was the big news item, actually. Um, and it, it says the date was February 4th. I don't know what year this is. Though. Does it have a date on this blog? This year. This year, yeah, and it says now we know, and I thought that was a little weird because uh, um, th- this is actually published in 2014. Oh, um, like, really? All this information came out in 2014. I guess just the the, the blog is a little bit, you know, late <laughs> right. on it or something. Maybe it's new because I know Wes doesn't do the blog; he has somebody else do it. And it says that it's the study suggests. Well, yeah, and you know why, how they figured that out is because they had a couple um, subdominant males cruising in an area where the male silverback was around, and they did not exude the smell. So, okay, let's back up a little bit and tell everybody what we're talking about. Gorillas, it turns out, have scent glands in their armpits that exude a stinky smell, often described in the same terms as uh, Sasquatch smells. Now, of course, you know our armpits smell as well, but we don't have scent glands. Our armpits smell because of bacteria that eats the sweat. It's, so there's bacteria feeding on the sweat that we produce in our sweat glands, and that's what makes our armpits stinky. Um, but gorillas, it turns out, have a scent gland that actually exudes some sort of oily chemical that smells really bad. And they use this to kind of communicate to one another uh, in various ways. Uh, I don't know how. I'm not sure what they're communicating, of course. But um, we do know that gorillas exude this scent when they are stressed out or when they're being aggressive or fighting and all that sort of stuff. Diane Fossey even commented several times about how she would often smell the silverback before she could see the silverback. 
Now, we knew that they did this sort of thing under high-stress situations, but they, we didn't know they could control it to the level that they can. And the way they found that out is that they were, I think that they used some, um, or they had some uh, subdominant males in the gorilla troop. And when they were in the territory of the big silverback, they would never stink up the area. They would never do that because they didn't, I guess they didn't want to piss off the big guy. Right. That's a challenge. Yeah, it's it's like when I'm hanging out with you. I never make my stink because I don't want to get you upset. <laughs> I guess I'm an alpha male because I'm broadcasting that scent all the time. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. If you've ever been close to Bobo, you know the scent I'm talking about. Um it's euphoric. But now and I think that's I think that's really interesting with the Sasquatch thing because uh only about ten or maybe fifteen, ten to fifteen percent of Sasquatch sighting reports have a smell associated with them. Um, and it makes me wonder, it's like, okay, well, maybe that, maybe the reason they, they let it loose or if, if they can control it, they may have the same gland. Um, they, they may have the same gland. So, uh, I, I think that they might because when Sasquatches are seen or sometimes before they're seen, people report the smell. And as you've, you taught me, it's very localized and in one particular area, but not outside this little five or 10 foot sphere area. It's very interesting. Um, but I think it must be a very stressful thing for a Sasquatch to run across a human in the woods or to know that it has been seen. And I think that that might be the trigger for them to let loose a little bit with this sort of stink if they have the same sort of gland that gorillas do. Yeah, because they, they said that they'd use it in real subtle ways, like when they'd show it, because they'd do it, it wouldn't be like, uh, it could be real quickly done, like turn on and off, depending on what. If there was a strange male silverback nearby, they might turn it off because they wanted to see who it was before they send it out as a broadcast. Like, this is me. This is who I am. Here's my stench. But they might, they, they weren't sure they could beat up to the gorilla or something. They might turn it off until they could see who it was. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really more how I use my scent, you know, kind of introductory <laughs> thing. Um, and, you know, um, the, the last time, the last time I smelled a Sasquatch, and it's only been three or four times in my whole life. The last time I smelled a Sasquatch was in November of this past, of 2021. I was out with Tom Shea at his location right after CryptidCon. Um, and, uh, we were at a long-term witnesses, um, property. I was working CryptidCon, which is a wonderful gig, of course, and everybody should go. On Saturday, the long-term witness, the woman who uh, owns the property, saw a Sasquatch on the board. She didn't say it was a Sasquatch. She said a big, massive, hairy thing running up the hill, pushing the trees out of the way with its arms. It was a big one. Um, and so I got there on Monday, days after. And it even rained in the meantime, by the way, um, days after. And I asked her to show me, hey, where did it run? She goes, oh, to the left of this tree, to the right of that, blah, 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 up the hill. Tom and I went up there, and we, and we found a little patch of um, rose hips, those nasty, thorny things that grow everywhere out there. And um, I smelled that same smell that I smelled with you all those many years ago in Bluff Creek. Remember that one night? It's that, yeah. the same night we were just talking about, actually, um, where I smelled that thing in the morning time. And then two weeks later, I was doing a follow-up investigation for Kathy and Bob Strain in the Sierras, where uh, some uh, military dudes got ran out of an area with their girlfriends. Um, up in Stanislaus National Forest, and the thing walked in between some trees, and I smelled the same smell in between those two trees and I, as I had smelled two weeks before with you, and then I smelled that same smell again this past November, even though it was like 14 years later or something like that. Well, yeah, I know that um, people reported the stench being like still totally noticeable two weeks after the thing left. Yeah, so, and you know, I always hear about how oily these things are. Maybe, maybe the oil just kind of sticks on stuff. It's got to be. 
It's got to be, right? It's got to be. Very interesting, though. You know, just it that is. smell. Like, what, And it was so interesting because I, I hadn't smelled that smell since the Sierras way back then. Um, and, and gosh, that was, what, 2008 or something like that? I mean, it was 14 years ago. Yeah, and when and I st- and I barely smelled it because it was so cold, man. I didn't know Kentucky got that cold. It was so cold, but the um, the frost on the ground was sublimating um, directly into gas, you know, sublimating. And, and um, I actually smelled it in the morning time. And, and as soon as it hit my nose, it brought me all the way back there to Bluff Creek and also the Sierras. Like, oh my god, I totally remember that smell. And yeah, it's, once you it's, smell it once, you know it when you smell it again. Yeah, it was it was pretty intense, man. It was very very faint, but I knew that smell. Yeah, and kind of a like dog poop parmesan, you know. Yeah. Well, shit, you're gonna get be a single man, Cliff. You don't get going. Oh, <laughs> you wouldn't you like it? Wouldn't you like to be the center <laughs> of all my attention, Bubs? <laughs> I know you don't like the competition from my wife, so <laughs> I'm gonna be very very happy to have her back home. I, I just love her so much and miss her when she's gone. But I mean, I love being alone. Don't get me wrong, I really do. But um, the only thing better than being alone is being with my wife. So there you go. Whatever that's worth. All right. Well, tell her hello for me. I will. I will, Bubs. Hey, it was fun talking, man. I love these episodes. And of course, maybe we should open this up to our listeners as well. If there's an article that you would like us to talk about, why not help us out, man? It's hard to get these things together. It's not like we don't have anything else going on. Send it to us. Uh, send us a link to an article. Maybe we're going to use it for something. Um, and again, the the email address for this or anything else you want to share with us is uh, Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast at gmail.com. And one more thing before I go, Bobes, um, and this is kind of important. Have you seen the new shirt designs we have? Oh, yeah, they're awesome. They are awesome. Totally awesome. So uh, go to our, I don't know, I guess maybe we'll put it on the website or Facebook or something like that. We have a, So our new shirt design was designed by a gentleman out in Sweden. His name is Nicholas Carbon. Um, super amazing work. He did it just to be cool. So we're going to send him a shirt. Um, a fantastic design. It is so much fun. I hope everybody enjoys our brand new shirt design. We're pretty much sold out of the other one. So if you want to keep up on the Bigfoot and beyond fashion, you know, fashion wave, be sure to check this shirt out. You can go to sasquatchprints.com and check out the new shirt design. We have uh, shirts and hoodies ready to go right now. Sasquatchprints.com is the website where you can get all of our kind, all of our merch. And you know what? And, and as I pointed out before, you're going to look great in it. It's very, very slimming. And, um, but, and you know what? You, if you're wearing one of these things, you're not going to need to exude any scent to attract a mate. It's just going to happen naturally. You're going to say, is that a Bigfoot and Beyond shirt you're wearing? Why, yes, it is. Yeah, it is slimming because it, I didn't lose 100 pounds. I just wear one of those T-shirts under everything I wear, so I look like I'm skinny. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, Bobo just changed his uh, his wardrobe. He didn't actually lose any weight at all. Yeah, see, so get this shirt, everybody. Sasquatchprints.com. All right, Bobs, take it away. All right, cool, folks. Thanks again for listening and all our new listeners. We appreciate you tuning in. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 